Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? How your week been? You know, my week has been pretty good, productive in, in terms of research. I actually, well, you shared it um, on our Facebook page, but last week I gave a, a little speech for the Public Education Foundation in my hometown, and it went very well, like better than I expected. I was not expecting the, the reception that I had, but... It was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's what's up. Yeah, I was definitely going to mention that because um, it, it looked like a dope experience. And I was like, okay, I see you. I see you getting some light, spreading some knowledge out here. <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny because when they asked me to say a few words, you know, I spent a, a few days just putting some remarks together. But I, I don't know. I guess it just really resonated with people. And, you know, pretty much the message was uh, because I went to a predominantly black high school, you know, it was called a dropout factory when I went there. Mm. I was the valedictorian. I went on to Vanderbilt and of course now I'm at Harvard. And when many people, they ask me, you know, how did I do it? Uh, they often like attribute it to like, oh, you must be really smart. You're, you know, you're incredibly intelligent. And I like to push that narrative aside because there are lots of intelligent and high performing students in the school, but they might not have some of the opportunities that I had to excel. I had some very unique opportunities. So, you know, I just wanted to say like, don't get caught up in the, you know, she's a hard worker. She pulled herself up by the bootstrap. She's intelligent. No, I mean, I am those things and I did work hard, mm -hmm. but there were a lot of just pivotal moments and unique opportunities that I had that, you know, made my trajectory possible. So, mm, yeah, no, that's dope. Yeah. And I think that means a lot. And I feel like more people need to have uh, those kind of when they in these positions to say those kind of things, because you're right. I think a lot of the dominant narrative is always like, oh, I did it alone. I did it alone. <laughs> and then people always just feel like, dang, like I got to do it alone. But like we all have help, man, no matter where you end up, everybody gets assistance and and resources from somebody or somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so it's good. It's good. I'm glad you highlighted that because there might be some young kids in the same position, like trying to figure out their future. And, and it's OK. It's OK mm -hmm. to get some help. Or look for some help. Exactly. And for me, it's kind of like, I will not be, you know, your special Negro. I will not be the one that you exalt and use to like talk down on like other black, like, no, never that. Like I, I had help. And if you decide to help and put the resources and, you know, give the opportunities to other students that look like me, they can do it too. But you will not use me as your, your example of like, this is, this is what can happen to you if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm glad you actually think of it in that way because I feel like sometimes people don't <laughs> and they'll get put in these positions and they will be used as that kind of black person to be like, look at here, look what I did, you know what I'm saying? And, and you can do it too and like point the finger and tell them, you know, that there's not another, no other approach. And, you know, I think black folks, we've always been focused on community. You know, that's how we always rose to the top with the support of our communities. And sometimes we accept that oppressor's narrative in a way and then we'd be used as a tool to to promote that narrative mm -hmm. without even knowing so it's mm -hmm. good to be 
conscious of that like you were. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so so take take that take notes from Daphne, y'all. This is what <laughs> you need to be thinking about when you get get those platforms and get some talks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what's up, though. Yeah, but what's up with you? Nothing much, you know, like just counting down the days to end of the semester. Uh, also waiting for this Game of Thrones. Oh. <laughs> By the time this airs, I would have already watched it. But, you know, I am excited for that. You know, a lot of shows, The Shy, I watch Billions, you know, all my kind of cable network television shows are back on. So uh, my Sundays are, are, are pretty popping. Hi, I don't think you understand how ready I am for this game of Thrones. There are actually some pools, like uh, like death pools, going around. Like, who do you think will survive by the mm. end of season eight? It was it was hard. Like, I I could pinpoint certain characters that I'm like, yeah, they're they're going. But it's a lot of them that I think there there's so many surprises that are going to be in place. Like Jon Snow. Like, what would you realistically think is going to happen to Jon Snow? Oh man. I mean, it's a tough one. I feel like he's going to make it because he's just been such an integral part and you kind of want him to make it. But he also might be, you know, the hero that sacrifices himself for everybody and put in a situation like that and winds up dying. Who knows? Okay, Jon Snow loves to sacrifice himself. He does. I so so one of the pools that I was looking at, they had the choice of you could say that the person was going to die and then you got a bonus point to say, were they going to become a White Walker? I think mm. Jon Snow is going to become a White Walker. I just, yeah. you know, like I just feel like they never give us what we want. Like that's and that's what I like about this show. Like it's just expect the unexpected. Don't get too caught up in any character because they will kill them. <laughs> so I, I feel like so, if it's not Jon Snow, somebody we love is going to become a White Walker. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I can see it being Jon Snow <laughs> and his or his brother Bran. Um, yeah, yeah, been... I can see Bran, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I guess we'll yeah. find out. I, and it's only, what, seven episodes, eight episodes, something, a short amount of episodes? Yeah, but they are longer. They are yeah, longer. I heard they're like 90 minutes each, like a whole movie mm-hmm. uh, length. Oh, man. So, yeah, I'm excited. And I'm sure, you know, we'll, I guess we'll talk about next week. Yes, we will <laughs> oh, talk yeah, about it, it. Yeah, that'll be our end of the month episode. So, yeah, we can talk about uh, what, what's, what we think is going to happen yeah. some more. Um, but all right, uh, ready to get into some Oh Lord news? Yes, I am. All right. all right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening Oh Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... So I'll actually start off with a little bit of yes, Lord news, okay. um, because it kind of speaks to, you know, the theme of like giving back, reaching, you know, back into the community and, you know, pulling people up and also highlighting that if we have the resources and opportunities, we can do it. So I'm pretty sure you've heard about LeBron James's I Promise School that mm-hmm. he founded for at-risk students. Well, Recent reports suggest that they are off to an excellent start. 90% of students who started the school year at least one grade level behind met or exceeded their expected growth in math and reading. Wow. That's what's up. 
Yes, so, you know, shout out to him. You know, given the students, you know, the instructional opportunities and, you know, other resources, I can't remember everything, but I know he has put a lot of resources into this school and into the lives of the students. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like to me, what's what I like about this approach that LeBron's doing is because he's from that community. Mm-hmm. And so he I feel like he thought of things that normally don't. You know, people don't think about when they're creating these kind of schools, like when he gave everybody bikes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they can easier commute to school. And it's because he understands what it was like walking to school, being from that community. And it's like, if somebody, if I were to even go into that community, I probably wouldn't have thought of something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're thinking about teachers and books and, and that kind of stuff. But these, these other informal things, I think also help these students succeed where just making their lives a little bit easier will make them be able to focus on schools a little bit more mm-hmm. and do better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also plays a role. Those kind of, you know, outside of like educational things play a role in the, their performance too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to see these results and see it grow like this. Yes. Yes. Me, uh, me too. And next year the, the school will expand to the fifth grade and it'll continue mm. adding grades every year until uh, the school is grade uh, one through eight. And that, okay. you know, transition should be complete by 2022. So big nice. ups to LeBron James. You are leaving a legacy in basketball, but also in your community. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I did want to give a little update on this uh, Oh Lord news story we had last week. I posted or we posted about it on Facebook. But you remember our story about the series of church fires in Louisiana. It was targeting black churches and uh, the fires were being investigated as possible hate mm-hmm. acts. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, at the end of the conversation, you know, we were kind of crossing our fingers and praying like, Lord, please don't let this be a racial hoax. Uh, don't let it be like a black person, you know, setting these fires just to, you know, bring attention to, you know, racism and hatred. And it turns out that it wasn't a racial hoax, but they were truly acts of hate. The mm-hmm. fires were allegedly started by Holden Matthews, who is actually the son of a Louisiana deputy sheriff. Mm-hmm. That is wild. Mm-hmm. And so it was initially reported and I even gave up big ups it was initially reported that the dad turned the son in and I was like yo though that that's what's up that's what's up but that's not true oh it's not true no that that has been corrected uh they said the dad did not know you know that the son had did it he did not turn his son in but the dad did facilitate with the arrest. And I think that's where, like, the miscommunication was. Oh, okay. He facilitated okay. He, with the arrest. probably wasn't like, y'all about to come in and beat up on my son. Yeah, I think yeah. he moved, took, like, if I read correctly, like, got the son out of the house, which helped facilitate with the arrest, so. Okay. So just correct the record. We gave you big ups and you did not deserve it, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. That's wild, though, to be the sheriff's son doing that. Um, again, man, this is 2019, and we're still seeing these things that was happening in, in Jim Crow South still present today. It's kind of wild, man. It's kind of wild. Uh, but I guess this is what, you know, a lot of people are saying is with somebody like Trump being in office, um, it it really uh, sheds light that we still have to deal with these you know, things that were racism. And in fact, there was a talk on my campus the other day by a woman by the name of Dr. Dugan, who is like, I think she's a department head or something like that in, um, 
at uh, what school in, in I can't remember what school in, in Maryland. Um, but but she's been doing research and it's just been coming out where she's been collecting data, her and her team um, over the past few years of looking at political leaders and its impact on extremism mm-hmm. and what her data has found. And it's the first of its kind to find that, yes, when political leaders such as presidents and stuff empower certain bodies, it does lead to an increase in extremist violence with mm-hmm. those particular groups. Because mm-hmm. before it was debatable and nobody had any data to support it. And so with her large data set, which is not even just in the U.S., it's with um, a bunch of other countries as well. The, the findings have been consistent thus far where it does matter. So someone like Trump doing this is actually having an impact and an uptick in violence. Mm-hmm. Um for mm-hmm. these marginalized communities. so And we can link that as well as uh, reports from the FBI about the rise in hate crimes over the past few years, like a sharp increase. The Southern Poverty Law Center also published a report or findings that, you know, back up the, the research you just cited. So nice. We'll link all of that in the description. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is a random story. It's kind of like people are going to be like, where did this come from? But I just had to do it because it's kind of funny. So this is bad news for the Beard Gang. Uh-oh. So uh, speaking of research, a study uh, that sampled beards found an alarming amount of bacteria in them. Oh, boy. Yes. They said... Every sample beard was crawling with bacteria and nearly half had bugs that were hazardous to human health. What in the world? Mm-hmm. By contrast, a number of dogs tested proved to have lower levels of microbes. Oh my God. So so our beards are nastier than, than dogs. <laughs> yes. yes. And I'm just like... Well, I want to know who was in that sample. And yeah, I mean, the que- there clearly needs to be more questions to be asked. <laughs> more questions. I- I'd like to see some uh, demographics. Mm-hmm. But I also just want to say, fellas, wa- wash your beards, wash them like you would yeah. your hair. Um, you know, because I'm guessing food gets trapped in it and like all types of stuff. I, c- I can just imagine. So, yeah, definitely the wash. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm questioning, I'm wondering how long the beards were. Too, because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they had to be some pretty long mm-hmm. beards to have all that kind of stuff. But I know like a lot of like guys who like don't wash their beards all the time because they say it would dry it out, so they just condition it a lot, but they don't really get in there and like clean it out like it needs to be. <laughs> so I'm sure you know I wouldn't be surprised for those who are not washing it. It's gonna be a little nasty. Yeah. <laughs> and if people dating these guys with long beards, be careful. Yeah, <laughs> there was actually a whole Facebook group dedicated to like women who wanted to date guys with beards. Did you hear about that? <laughs> no, I didn't hear about it that. It was like a beard gang Facebook group. You know, I, w- I wasn't in it, but I heard about it. <laughs> heard about it. Yes. I guess they got they tight. Yeah, they, they do, but mm. Mm, yeah. Okay, so my final Oh Lord news story, it kind of, you know, gets us back on track to talk about, you know, justice and, you know, some of the issues that are happening. Did you hear that your girl... Kim Kardashian is about to become a lawyer. Oh, my goodness. My students brought this news to me the other day in class. <laughs> and I was just like, come on, man. Come on. Okay. I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, I mean, y'all already know how I feel about the Kardashians, but but continue. <laughs> okay. So for those of you who don't know, there are 
four states that have laws to where there's like an alternate route for you to take the bar exam other than having a bachelor's degree and attending law school, which she, you know, doesn't have a bachelor's degree and she hasn't earned a JD. But in California, you can complete a four year apprenticeship with a law firm and, you know, study for the bar exam. And if you take it and you pass, you can become a practicing attorney. And supposedly, you know, let me stop because that was shady. Last summer, <laughs> she started her apprenticeship. <laughs> See, oh, you know, that that skepticism is just seeping out. But yeah. she, <laughs> she started her apprenticeship last summer and she's publicizing it now. So they say she intends to take the bar exam, I think, in 2023. Mm, OK, well, I, you know. I guess kudos to her. Um, you know, the skepticism, I think, is a real thing. We never know what her real intents are. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what? first off, I'm que- I'm really questioning what this apprenticeship looks like, because I'm pretty sure it's not yeah. going to be the same as if you and I were to do an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably mm-hmm. a little more flexibility with her. And then also, I, I don't know why she's doing this. I mean, it could be a lot of reasons, but I'm also starting to think this. This is just my my theory, is that she has children. And a lot of her critique has been like, what do you do? What is your skill set? You know, mm -hmm. and I feel like when you're about to raise your children, you're about to tell them to do things with their lives. They're going to ask you like, Ma, what do you what do you do? And -hmm. I feel like this is just a tack where she can throw some credentials behind her name now. Like, listen, I got my my law. I'm I'm a lawyer. You know, I'm saying uh, I have these credentials or whatever. I feel like that is in the back of her mind because, you know, dad, dad is a artist, music artist, and that's his skill set. And then I think she wants to. Add something to her family, so when her children are look being raised and looking up to her, that she has something to say. Yeah, I do think that she has forever been trying to overcome, like the "I became famous from a sex tape." Like mm-hmm. people have consistently over the years asked, like, "What are you famous for? Like, why are you famous?" And it took years for her to even get invited to things like the Met Gala because people did not take her seriously. Yeah, uh, and I think that she has been trying to overcome like that past, and there's there's nothing wrong with that I also did read that she you know she mentioned that she she advocated for uh, I, I can't think of the the woman's name but there she advocated for a woman who had been convicted to be released from prison do you remember that yeah. Uh, oh, my God. I can't remember her name, but yeah, I know you're talking about. Uh, she mentioned how when she was in a room, she could, you know, talk about things from like a, you know, passionate perspective. You know, she could talk about it with emotions. But when the lawyers started talking, she realized that there was a lot of substance behind what they were saying. And it wasn't substance that she could necessarily add to the conversation. And that kind of sparked her interest in studying law so that when she talks about issues, yeah, there can be. And, you know, I, there is zero wrong with that. That's, you know, kind of why we yeah. started this podcast. Mm-hmm. So so for me, it's kind of like if she's serious and she passes the California bar without any testing irregularities, mm-hmm. yeah. then more power to her. You know, yeah. you know, she yeah. can bring she has a platform. She can bring attention to some important issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, though, that, you know, California, the California bar has a reputation of being like the most difficult one in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's going to be tough. Yeah. But hey, like I said, I know that she's not doing it for this reason, but. At least I would say watch. I'll keep my eye on this and watching what she does with this if she passes and does actually positive things. It will, you know, 
I guess, mean something to skeptics like myself to maybe start to view her in a different light. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, <laughs> I can say that. I, I will say, though, real G's move in silence. Like, if this also was... true. If this was me, baby, I would have already passed the bar exam and people would have been like, where'd that come from? Like, yeah, I, that's I, true. You know, sometimes you don't talk about it. You just, you be about it. You yeah, know? you so, just, two years from now, we're just like, oh, Kim got her degree or whatever. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, I mean, I would say that would have impressed me more but if she does get it in 2023, I would still be just as impressed. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got a, a couple more stories too, real quick. Um, and I you know I posted a couple of them on Facebook, so I'm not sure where everyone saw them, but I just wanted to talk about it really quickly. Mm-hmm. One is with, um, I know everybody has uh, the Amazon like Echoes and all that stuff, and when you talk to uh, a couple of my family members, have it when you what is it called? Um, it's not called Echo. Is it called Echo? Um, I believe What's the so. name of the thing on? Um, anyway, I can't remember, but I know y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, what is it called? Cause everybody Alexa. Alexa. Yeah. I'm like, yo, <laughs> Alexa, Alexa, turn on my lights, Alexa, all this, whatever. Um, and so they've been, you know, growing in popularity, but there was this recent article that I saw on CNN was talking about, it was just found that uh, pretty much Amazon hires um, thousands of employees to listen to these conversations uh, across the world. <laughs> that is disturbing. It is very disturbing. Um, and they say they do it, you know, uh, randomly. They choose random conversation and it's done solely for the purpose to improve these, the hardware's ability to mm-hmm. understand language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I just don't feel comfortable with that. And I know there's like a lot of movement in the government right now trying to figure out ways to kind of put some regulations on these companies, how they just have so much of our information and access to it and what they do with it. Um, but yeah, this is definitely one of the scary ones. And I have one. I never set it up for that very reason because I just don't trust these things yet because they're just constantly listening. Uh, but it's it's a known fact, y'all, that they're hiring people to actually listen to these things. So be careful. That is, that's, these companies, they have too much power and we're moving toward more deregulation. I don't feel like the government is going to do anything about it yeah. they're in the pockets of you know that business people so oh lord yeah it's gonna be uh yeah so i don't have one but for those of you who do be careful of what's being said or what you're doing on them things and another one um is uh kind of it's, it's getting a little crazy um but i know i'm sure you've seen movies like planet of the apes right Yes, okay. which well, I, this- I enjoy. Is I like that. <laughs> well, it looks like we might be potentially moving in that direction uh, with science. Um, I've seen this article came out on Vox, and it pretty much um, these Chinese scientists in, in China, they have pretty much added human brain genes to monkeys. Oh, my okay. God. And they tested, they've taken a particular gene. Um, I think it's called the MCPH1 for all my STEM folks in there who might be interested in this. And they've put it into 11 uh, particular monkeys in their like embryonic phase or whatever. Six wind up dying, um, mm-hmm. but the others lived. And then they did all types of scans and tests compared to the, the monkeys that did not have it. And these monkeys that did have the human um, gene actually did perform better on short-term memory task. Okay. Um, and so this is one of the studies, one of the first of this kind. And now they're about to continue this study and use other human brain genes, et cetera, and put them into these monkeys to see what kind of effect it have. And if some are more influential than others, but the first time around, 
there was improved, you know, um, cognitive abilities with the, the the monkeys that did have it. Now, when Caesar plans his uprising, <laughs> I don't want nothing. This is wild. And so there is in the science community, there's a lot of um, ethical, you know, ethical issues with a lot of people doing saying doing this and and kind of playing with fate in a lot of ways. Um uh, but it's in the beginning and China's doing it. They said they're not going to keep doing it. And so we'll see where it goes. But I just wanted to shed shed some light on that for y'all because it's kind of wild. It's, that's very wild. <laughs> Whose side you going to be on, Ty? Uh, I'm going to be with Season. You know <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be like, yo, I feel you. I'm we like, have yo, been man. oppressed too. <laughs> yes. What they did to you was messed up. And yeah, we stand with you, Caesar. <laughs> uh, they wildin'. They wildin'. Um, but but a more uh, more recent story that has happened as well that um, I think takes us into a topic of today um, has to do with a study, uh, not a study, a story that came out um, a few, uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week ago, April 8th was when it came out. Um, and it was by a basketball player, professional basketball player, a guy by the name of Kyle Korver. Some of you may know him. I mean, he's one of the more famous white basketball players out there because uh, he played with LeBron and him for a while. And he pretty much came out with a story talking about white privilege and being a white basketball player and how he um, has come to the realization of his kind of contribution to racism for being complicit and quiet in a lot of ways when it came out to a lot of his colleagues and friends and players that are NBA players. And it, more recently, he started to think about it when the whole situation happened with Russell uh, Russell Westbrook uh, with the Jazz. I don't know if you heard about that, Daph, when he was going back and forth with a, a, a fan. Mm, yeah, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and then, you know, he, he started talking about how he had to check his own biases because his first reaction was, you know, uh, Russ shouldn't be doing that, or maybe the fan didn't say something bad. And it and, and also actually really started when uh, 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 Thabo Cephalosha, or I think it's him, got in trouble with the police and they like broke his leg in 2015. Um, and his first reaction was like, oh, I wonder what he did wrong, you know, why the, for the police to do that to him. Uh, but then having conversations with his teammates and seeing what's going on, he began to realize like just that way of thinking it contributes to a lot of what happens. Um, mm. And and so he's really begun to question and highlight and pretty much hold. He's like, I, we us, as his white people help me to other white people accountable for the experiences of, of black and brown folks, and especially in the NBA, because that's where his the world he's in. Um, so it's a really interesting article, made a lot of headlines and has been passed around all over the place uh, from like really an introspective spot, really thinking about how, you know, he can actually assist and what he's been doing as far as assisting. Because he said the main thing is like a lot of times when he thought of racism, it was always the kind of explicit forms but really never those implicit forms of racism. And of course we know about that because we talked about that with Dr. D'Angelo a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's just along those lines. And um, I think it was really good that he went, he's thinking like that and, and starting conversation and, and urging his own, you know, people that look like him to move forward in that direction too. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. We cannot move forward. Marginalized groups cannot truly make the impact that they want without allies that have privilege, mm -hmm. allies who can talk to their own folk 
pull them to the side, like, hey, come here. We, we yep. can't be like this. We need mm-hmm. that. And like you said, we kind of talked about uh, that with Dr. D'Angelo. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that today because we do have a conversation about the role of privilege in allyship. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Today we'll be speaking with Corey Ponder, um, who is CEO of what is known as Impact Strategies. And pretty much is an organization where he built, where he, he actually assists companies and individuals to really create spaces and have inclusive environments and diverse experiences for people. And I think this is important because we've we've talked about research and we've talked about kind of abstractly and theoretical ways of how we can begin to apply this. But um, his particular organization actually gives us tangible ways and strategies to make this happen, mm-hmm. whether you're a company or whatever institution we're for, or even an individual, because yes, there's probably going to be a lot of white folks who are like, yeah, I want to well help. I want to be an ally, but how do I do that? And Corey has given us the tools and strategies of actually how to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll link his website, you know, check it out. You know, you can reach out. Maybe you can get some coaching. Maybe you can bring him to your organization because again, like Ty said, it's not just about the theory. It's not just about the research, which we love. We, mm-hmm. we love a good study, yep. but we also love some action too. So, yeah. yeah. All right, so without further ado, we'll we'll get into it and we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. In recent years, we've witnessed a rise in identity-based harassment, public acts of hate, and the normalization of bigotry. Indeed, research from the Southern Poverty Law Center and reports from the FBI highlight a sharp increase in hate crimes over the past few years. These findings suggest that now more than ever, we must find strategies to combat hate and work to develop safe and inclusive spaces for marginalized populations. Today, we examine what it means to become an ally and advocate in the current political environment by interviewing Corey Ponder, the founder of Impact Strategies. In addition to discussing how his organization works to build a bridge between empathizing and action, we also discuss myths and misconceptions surrounding allyship, the relationship between privilege and allyship, and specific steps that can help you grow as an ally. Welcome, Corey Ponder. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. Um, So we always start these conversations by trying to get to know a little bit more about you. We want to have our listeners to really understand like who they're talking to and hearing from. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. So thank you first for the introduction. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to school at Vanderbilt and got my BS in political science. And then I went off to policy school because I felt like a BS in political science was not gonna get me a job. Um, So I really wanted to get some practical skills in policy and thinking about how you apply that as a skill set to creating real change. And that led me to the federal government space where I was a policy analyst for a few years And then eventually I've been able to use my policy background in tech as both a policy analyst and a program manager. And I think for me, as I think about my background, a common thread has been really this connection to change, but then also how I use my skills to help the communities that I represent and help these organizations that I am in be better when it comes to supporting those communities. And so yeah, that's manifested itself in a lot of diversity work over time and just really understanding what these 
what the challenges are at these different organizations and these places that I've been in and also the opportunities given my background and my knowledge of policy and also my personal experiences as a black man, how those things can help organizations grow and thrive. And one of the key skills I feel like I've been able to bring to the table has really been focusing on self-awareness and empathy and interpersonal skills. And so when I think about my background, I really feel like that's where I've been moving myself towards as I started impact strategies and started thinking about my work beyond just the policy and tech space is how I can use my knowledge and my skills and also my experiences to help companies think more about those as a real practical set of skills to help them with diversity and inclusion in their companies. Mm, nice, nice. You know, kind of going back to, you know, what, what Daphne said in the intro, um, can you tell us a little bit about your organization impact strategies and kind of like what sparked your desire to kind of build a bridge between empathizing and action? Absolutely. So I started impact strategies really as an idea that was focused on this question, uh, how can we move conversations about inclusion and diversity from like a numbers game to something that's more focused on personal connection? And I started thinking about that around the time that Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were murdered by police officers. As I think at the time, I had been doing diversity work in addition to my regular job, my nine to five, but that was really heavy for me, maybe because it was broadcast or because of social media amplifying it, uh, maybe because I was in a space or in a sector where we were answering a lot of questions about what it meant to build community or think about like human connection. But whatever the case, I feel like it sat really heavily with me. And the thing that I took out of that as I moved through that space was actually how powerful empathy was and how powerful community was for helping me move through that period of thinking about how this affected me and made me think about my own experiences as a black man. And I actually found that there were a lot of people that were hungry for both in like inside and outside of work, hungry for conversations around the implications of this. What did this mean for Black Lives Matter? Why were people upset? What uh, has this experience happened to people that I knew? And so I began answering a lot of these questions for colleagues and friends and thinking about this experience in relation to like I said, my own experiences. And I thought, well, this is a teachable moment for me and how I can expand my impact by thinking about this as a business and as a company. And so that was the birth of impact, literally thinking about empathy and its impact on others and how they think about inclusion and diversity. And so I focus on teaching workshops. I facilitate workshops for companies. I also do coaching for individuals who are looking to work through challenges or problems that have a diversity, inclusion, or community building angle to it. And I really think about how I can help them rewire themselves as they think about what allyship is, give them guided exercises or practical tools for building better habits and really building communities that ultimately will serve as a resource for supporting them when they need it most as they're thinking about this, what can be a very difficult journey and conversation around creating inclusive communities. So you just uh, mentioned the word ally and it kind of gets us to our next question because I know you've published quite a few um, articles in, in different mediums about 
allyship. And so I was just wondering, what does it mean to be an ally? What is um, allyship and why is it important to think and talk about? Mm. Thank you for asking. I think allyship, so it's interesting, allyship to me, I use this analogy in some of my trainings and workshops of how we need to move away from this idea of saving the day because that's not actually allyship. I think people look at allies as heroes, like a person who comes in at the last minute, who's looking at a problem and saying, I've got the solution and I have the skills and abilities. So it's my turn to kind of make a change. And actually I feel like allyship is essentially being the the Robin to Batman or being like the Timon and Pumbaa to the Lion King or, uh, or you know, just thinking about how we actually show up in the story to support the journey of the people who need the support. So allyship, I feel like at its core is, is just really connecting to that story of the protagonist or that story of the individual who is being excluded or being oppressed in some way and then really leveraging our abilities or our skills to help them and not necessarily co-opt the story, but create an environment where your skills are, are in privilege or background is relevant and helpful to them. Nice. So, you know, what are some myths and misconceptions that people have about actually becoming an ally? Yeah. So when I think about allyship, the one that always is one that I want to actually write an article on, but it's, this idea of allyship isn't, people think allyship is not active. So people are always coming up with these different terms or like we wanna have people be advocates, not allies, or be co-conspirators or whatever other word people use to describe it. And I think for me, the frustrating part is that I think allyship as a concept has become diluted by a lot of the ways we think about advocacy in the 21st century, you know, tweeting a hashtag is feels very relevant and feels very woke or reading an article and saying that's wrong feels empowering. And that, that's a part of the journey. But I also feel like there's really an active component to this that allyship really is. Um, there's you learn, you become self-aware, then you act on that. And I think that people have separated that out probably to some degree because of the way we treat allyship now as a as a term and concept to make it pretty easy for people to dive into um, it by, again, wearing a pen or just saying that you support a community. But I think that that's the, the biggest myth, I feel like, is that allyship is really a journey that moves you through all of those things, and it does end with you acting. I think the other component of allyship that I feel like is a bit of a myth is that people think of it as a title. So I'm an ally. And so that means that, you know, I can say, Hey, like I get it or give me credit for showing up in this community. And I find that problematic just because allyship really is something that you don't just suddenly get. Like, it's not like you achieve a plane of nirvana and you're like, I'm there and that's it. It's really about like the journey of always doing the reflection, always being aware and trying to improve and learn and grow and understand yourself a bit more. And I like to think of it like baseball, uh, just thinking about like a batting average. It's, the goal is not necessarily to, you know, get one hit, but it's to hopefully increase your batting average over time to where you're more likely to hit that 
the right way and get on base and, you know, hopefully score. So I think that when you think about it like that, there's always room for self-improvement because nobody's batting 100% unless they're on steroids or something like that. <laughs> well, I just want to say, okay, you have so many examples. You are clearly an educator. Like I could definitely see you being really effective in your workshops with all the different, you know, examples of what, you know, what a term means, what it doesn't mean. Um, but you know what you made, uh, what you just said made me think about, uh, I guess, privilege. So like mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in social media where I, I personally see like a lot of what I would consider privileged people, they tweet, they hashtag, they do the things, but sometimes there's like kind of tension because people who are on the ground are like, yeah, you're tweeting, but you aren't really here. You aren't really doing this for us. And so, you know, it made me want to think uh, or talk a little bit about like the role that like status and privilege play in allyship, like in thinking about like intersectionality, um, how do we get people to recognize their privilege to say like, hey, I can't just come into these spaces and, you know, be the hero or, you know, save the day. Um, And especially how do we get people to think about themselves as like privileged in certain spaces when they feel like oppressed in other spaces? Does that make any sense? Mm. Yeah, it makes total sense. I think that's it's, it's a challenge because that's, especially when you're talking about allyship and telling people to step up is, you know, I don't, everybody's experience is relevant and I don't want to discount people's experiences when I say this, but I also feel like there is a game we play of essentially my struggle is more important than your struggle. Therefore you should do your, you should help me first before I help you. And I think, that really when I teach or when I talk about allyship, my goal is to actually find a way to validate all of those struggles and not necessarily make it feel like there's a zero sum game being played out that in order for you as a, you know, white man in this session to really be an ally, you have to ignore the fact that maybe you come from a socioeconomic background where you did have to struggle and that did teach you or give you some, moments where you learn what exclusion felt like or where you learn what having not having something in a space where others had something what that meant so what i try to do is say like hey you're a white man and you know people talk a lot about allyship in the context of white men being kind of the ultimate people to think about in terms of allies and what they can do to step up because positions of power and like systemic systemically we see white male men in those areas of power um, more than other underrepresented communities white straight men but what I would like to connect people to in my sessions is the idea that at some point we've all felt excluded and so what I want people to understand is that feeling that this that you might have felt as someone who grew up in a different socioeconomic background or, you know, for being black in a majority white space or being a woman in a majority male space or whatever the the situation is, or even if people have had it wonderful and they were like, the only time I can think of is when I was excluded from the kickball team because I had the worst kick in the grade. It still is a feeling of exclusion that I feel like I'm trying to connect people to so that they can understand once I then talk about allyship that I don't need you to 
understand necessarily what it means to be a black man, or I don't need you to understand what it means to be a member of the LGBTQ community. What I need you to understand is that these stories are stories of exclusion. So if you can connect with that and the feeling that you've had, then you know what it feels like to be excluded when somebody tells you that that's what's happening to them. So that for me, I think that's how you get across the intersectional dynamics of, well, all of us have had privileges and all of us have probably had some form of exclusion. So we're not about to rank those or say yours is more important than the others because that's not going to actually get us anywhere, I think, in the grand scheme of things and trying to actually create change. Mm, no, no, that's interesting. You know, and I'm thinking about when, you know, we throw the words out there like allies and allyship. And sometimes there's this assumption that, you know, the expectation sometimes that we want people to be allies. But I think it's also important to know that maybe people don't know necessarily how to be allies. And I know that's some of the work that you do. And so when we think about that, how does one actually become an ally? Are there specific steps someone should take or exercises one could go, could do to actually grow as an ally? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, for me, I think there's so there's three things that I always think of when I think about growing as an ally. And the first is really starting with those everyday moments. I feel like there is a tendency to talk about allyship in the context of movements. And I think that's important. So understanding what Black Lives Matter is or understanding what the Me Too movement is about, those are important, but can also feel very overwhelming if you're asking somebody to, hey, stand up for the rights of women. It's like, man, where do I start? But I think if you tell people, hey, there are probably, you go to work every day, you sit at this desk, start paying attention to how your colleagues interact with other colleagues. Start thinking about the meeting spaces you're in, who talks a lot, who doesn't. Uh, start thinking about, you know, the opportunities that you have to work on projects. So do what? Who's in the room when you work on those projects? And so those are moments that you can control potentially, especially as you move up the chain or uh, have some type of leadership in your organization. But the everyday moments are actually where I think you can both push for change. It really matters to somebody and ultimately be a part of the solution for making change systemically. Uh, the second is really the reflection piece I talked about earlier. I think when, when I think of allyship, again, I'm, I'm really focusing on the individual. And so I think that there's a lot that we can do like systemically and that's great. But the real change I believe happens when we change our culture. I think culture is the mindset sort of reflections about the history and like our values and morality that we take with us from generation to generation and that we then act out. And so what are we doing individually to change ourselves? So confronting ugly truths about our environment, like our families, our, like our own thoughts, what are we doing to actually change that narrative and confront it every day and be honest with ourselves when we're being biased or stereotypical or, perpetuating something that we know is wrong, but we just made excuses for before. I think doing a lot of self-reflection actually will break down a lot of barriers uh, for the final thing, which is really understanding your privilege and using it to on behalf of others. I think privilege is something that I think when we talk about can sometimes feel like we're saying you're, you should feel guilty because you've had it easy or you should feel bad because 
those communities were oppressed and you weren't, or you have a history of oppressing this community. Um, and I think that that approach makes people feel defensive about their privilege and about the way that that has showed up for them and their families and their ancestors. So I think for me, it's really thinking about how you reframe that privilege to treat it more as a tool. So yes, I do. You know, I think about myself. I mean, yes, I'm a black man, but I also know that I've benefited from having two very strict parents that always cared about what I did in school and that showed up to every single activity I ever did, even when I sucked at it, like playing sports. And, you know, they gave me that support to make me feel confident enough that I could do anything despite what challenges were in front of me as a black man. I went to Vanderbilt, which I know is a great university, and then Berkeley after that. So because I have those privileges now, should I feel bad about the fact that I have these opportunities? No, I should own them and admit that they're privileges and then think about how I apply them to helping people. So I have maybe I have access. Maybe I have been able to take advantage of some resources or tools that gives me an advantage when it comes to job prep, job readiness. So how can I meet with communities that I'm going to come across who might not have had that educational opportunity and help give them access to the knowledge that I have. So I think that's kind of what I mean when I think about owning your privilege and then using it as a force for change. So those are like kind of three areas that I think of when I think of growing as an ally. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, And I'd like to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, kind of like allyship and advocacy um, among black people. So you use yourself as an example. And then earlier you kind of talked about how white males can be seen as like the epitome of like privilege. And we often focus on like what they can do to be better allies. Um, But we've recently been having conversations, you know, with people you know, who represent, you know, different areas that they're, you know, trying to get support and advocacy um, from individuals within a black community. And there seems to be certain areas where, you know, black black people, you know, don't want to be too general, uh, might be behind the curve in terms of like stepping up to the plate in terms of being advocates for those particular issues. And I was just wondering if you could, you know, speak about that. Like, what do you think are some areas or issues uh, for growth in terms of where, you know, black people could step up to be better advocates, you know, even for their own brothers and sisters? Yeah, absolutely. I have So as you talked about that, I think that the two things that came to mind first are our institutions. And then the second is intersection intersectionality. So to talk about institutions, I think that we as a black community have institutions that were monumental and instrumental in the movements of our 20th century, for sure. And like changing the way we think about education and giving us access to those or giving us um, people or organized spaces like the NAACP or the, you know, SCLC, like to come together and think about like our common issues and how we can organize for change. And I think when I look at the 21st century, I just feel like there is probably a disconnect uh, between what institutions are doing and their understanding of the kind of new civil rights that the black community would face, partly because the black community is not, I don't feel as 
is as monolithic as it might have been in the 60s, 50s, or even the early 1900s during like Jim Crow and Reconstruction. So I think that as I think about how we as like a community can do better, I do think that there is just like a conversation we need to have around what it means to be black in America and what rights are we going to like champion and like make us make a part of our platform. So there are things that we might agree on where we're all championing police, like fighting against police brutality. But what about, you know, the deaths of like our black queer community or black trans community or, you know, the, uh, harassment that goes on there like homophobia is probably still real I feel like in many parts of the black community um, and so then it's like how do you reconcile that and make sure that the institutions are still in touch with the issues that matter today and also how do they support the communities that want to like the younger communities for instance that want to get involved with these issues I'm a Greek uh, pledged at Vanderbilt University and I remember uh, seeing some of the things that really excited me were seeing some of these leaders from the civil rights movement be a part of also these Greek organizations and thinking like, wow, that's amazing. And that's so cool and so relevant to see that these institutions all like essentially fed each other. And I remember at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter, like really the kickoff of like national organizing. I remember seeing emails and seeing letters floating around within the same community from these organizations asking their members not to wear their letters or not to show that they were actually affiliated with the organization if they chose to go protest on behalf of Black Lives Matter. And I feel like that's a big disconnect because, again, it's like, well, these are the issues of today. So if the new civil rights is really thinking about police brutality. What can we do to be a part of that collectively and support these future leaders who are also members of these organizations and institutions? And then the second thing I'll say is uh, going into the intersectionality is I remember having a conversation over dinner with some, with a few people after Bill Cosby or during, and I guess after the Bill Cosby uh, sentencing and trial, and one of the things that came up was this idea of the unfairness and oppression of black men versus the sexism that's rampant and certainly the U.S., but also probably globally. And one of the interesting things that came up was during the conversation, everybody pretty much was like, yeah, this is there's all of these reasons why sexual harassment and sexual assault creates this world or this space where women feel afraid to speak up. But then there were some black men in particular in this conversation who were very much like, well, you know, I just don't know if I trust these women because there's all there's always this narrative of black men, you know, being put in jail for things they didn't do, being punished overly and above and beyond what white men would be doing the same thing would be punished for. And, you know, that just means I feel like there's a reason to believe or suspect that there's foul play um, in the case of Bill Cosby, because he's a black man and we want to make, and society and institutions want to make examples of black men. And I think why I bring this up is that I think this intersectionality piece is interesting for us as a community and that we have to think about how we, again, where how can it be both and? You know, I think that the fact that, 
the criminal justice system is very unfair to black men is well documented and researched by people with more cool degrees than I have. But I think that also, and also, that doesn't take away from the fact that it is hard for women to speak up in these moments where they have been assaulted or have been mistreated and they are in a dynamic where somebody has influence or power or fame and resources. And so it's like, how do we as a black community understand that intersection and then think about like the both and scenario that the system is screwing a lot of oppressed communities and we have to be able to hold our people accountable if they get things wrong in the, even if the system is going to punish them more heavily for that wrong thing they did. So those are two, uh, just two things that came to mind. But when you were talking about, um, you know, kind of the response from some uh, Greek organizations about like, oh, you know, don't be out there. It's kind of like, is the talented 10th as a concept, is it even relevant anymore if we aren't willing to kind of move with the times? Because it it was a, it was the, I guess the more, I guess you would call it elite class that were like leading some of the movements in the past. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of like, uh, you know, don't wear your pair out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, no, I, I hear you. I think it's a concept that probably needs to be reexamined. I think that, uh, there was, and interesting, I feel like, I, I don't think I'm misquoting it, but I think um, I went to this talk a long time ago uh, with Lawrence Ross, who is like a author and like lecturer. He does work on Greek life and other like African-American history and uh, studies. But he essentially told a story about like institutions. Uh, he was speaking specifically about Greeks, but he mentioned this idea that for him, this concept of institutions and like organizations supporting the community and like understanding and measuring the impact of what that work has been is only going to like, you will only know that you've done a good job when you can take your car with your Greek license plate on it or your, you know, NAACP sticker and park your car somewhere in like a neighborhood full of black people and like know that like you can leave all the doors unlocked and it won't get broken into. And I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the point you was trying to make was, you know, I think we have this concept of getting into these organizations or using these different uh, titles in these organizations, almost like a sense of, like you said, elite, like talented 10th status things about who we are and kind of how we're separated from or we have this, you know, mandate as like, you know, educated elite black members of this community. And it's like, well, okay, but what does that actually mean for like the rest of black people everywhere else? Like those letters don't mean anything to them if you're not actually in the community putting in work or, you know, that title with that uh, local chapter of this black, you know, historically black organization doesn't mean a thing if actually you then move away from the community and never come back. So I think the point he was making, I think, is is a real one, which is really the like what you were saying, Daphne, what is the relevance of the Talented 10th if the Talented 10th is not actually plugging back into the community and doing the uplift work that comes with taking advantage of that opportunity? I think it made a lot more sense and relevance back then because the talented tense literally was not everybody's going to get a chance to go to college or not 
everybody's going to have access to these opportunities. So you're getting a chance because this community has literally put everything behind you to like get you here and support you. So now you, it's like the sense of giving back is uh, you're connected a lot more to that sense of giving back because you knew where you got the opportunity to even do what you're doing in the first place. And I feel like maybe to some degree we've lost that. Thank you. I appreciate your your thoughts on that. And I kind of agree. We need to do some we need to do some evaluation. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Except relevance in the 21st century. I think that's one of the challenges for our community as a whole. It's like our, it does this stuff and what we talk about and what our institutions care about in the community. Do we even understand what's really facing the community and are we standing up for it? Mm, interesting. Um, you know, as as we've been talking, I've been kind of thinking and even like how you outlined it on your website, you put up certain percentages and stuff like that, which I think is really interesting to to really hone in on the fact of why certain organiz- organizations or people need to take diversity and inclusion seriously, whether it's the cost, like $64 billion you have on there, or that just active and passive job seekers are looking for a diverse workspace, um, a workforce to be a part of when they're evaluating companies and things like that. So that leads me to the question. Some of our listeners may be saying, hmm, you know, I may want to solicit um, Corey services and things of that nature. So what what kind of things do you actually do to kind of facilitate these conversations with diversity and inclusion and actually help companies or individuals like build up um, that kind of key element within their within their environment? Yeah, I focus on practical tools or skills that people can take away. So either as an organization or individual. So when people reach out to me, I'm really thinking about, tell me exactly what your problem is. And I eventually want to get us to a place where you have an action plan or a set of things that you can try to help you grow or move into this space. So for example, in one of the last workshops that I I did, uh, we talked a little bit about how you overcome your fear of speaking up because that is a reality. Maybe you just like you see something wrong, but you know that there might be implications or ramifications or you've picked up on these different cultural things within the system you occupy or the space that you occupy that maybe this isn't going to go over so well for you if you speak up on behalf of somebody else. And so what I did was I came up with or uh, worked through that session uh, framework for overcoming fear and like re it's actually, you know, rooted in psychology, just thinking about cognitive restructuring and how we have, how we can, go back through an exercise of actually looking at a moment where we were afraid and or that we did not do something because of fear and actually restructure our thinking around what actually happened, what were the facts of that moment, and then build up a positive affirmation and plan for yourself for when that and when you encounter that type of fear, that type of situation again. And so that is an example of hearing, for me at least, like hearing the problem and understanding like, hey, this is a thing for so many people or for this organization. Let me think of like an actual tool or a framework that's going to help move people a little bit closer to this idea of like speak up next time or take the step of 
actually learning about somebody different than you next time or whatever the problem is that people are facing. Hmm, that's really interesting. And, you know, you, you were using words that said hmm, those Berkeley and Vandy degrees paid off because you said you didn't have a bunch of fancy degrees like some people. Uh, but <laughs> clearly, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, um, you know, Google also is, is pretty awesome. You know what? Actually, my, my motto in life is I can do all things through God and Google. You better let them use you with that message. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was just thinking like, you know, we've asked you a lot, but we kind of want to give you the floor to talk about anything that we didn't ask about. Like, is there anything we didn't ask that you think might be important to um, discuss or address with our listeners? Man, no, this was really great. I think you covered a lot of ground. I don't think there's anything else that I could think of in the context of the allyship discussion, only to reiterate, I think that allyship is a journey. So it's definitely not something that you just get. And I think the goal of it really is to get more comfortable with the discomfort that it's going to cause because you will be challenging yourself a lot. And the expectation is that challenging yourself forces you to change and change is not necessarily without friction. So, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of when I think about allyship and teaching it, it's also what I try to like really emphasize that encouragement piece, like encourage yourself because it's not, you always easy to change and challenge yourself. Mm. No, that, that's real. That's real. Um, so can you tell our listeners or where can people find you or learn more about your word? You have websites, social media accounts, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I will only list a few. I'm not going to, you know, be out here like I'm at the Grammys. You know, they cut Cardi B off when she was accepting her speech. So I'm not gonna, <laughs> I don't want her to cut me off. So I'm going to keep it uh, real simple. Corey T. Ponder is my handle, um, C-O-R-E-Y-T, Ponder. And that is all one word on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. If you want to follow me there, I have also Impact Strategies, E-M-P-A-C-T, Strategies, all one word on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. If you want to follow my pages and accounts there. And then all of this information is on my website, www.impactstrategies.com or www.coryponder.com. So you can find all of this stuff there if you can't find the handles for my social media. And of course, we will list these websites and your handles, um, and we won't cut you off like Cardi. <laughs> Thank you. She was about to say something powerful, so you know I was just listing handles, but I, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, yeah. So thank you, Corey, for taking the time to come chat with us. We really appreciate all the work that you do with Impact Strategies and we're sure that our listeners have learned and gained some valuable knowledge. And, you know, hopefully some people will reach out to you if they're a part of organizations or they feel like they're themselves or lacking when it comes to diversity and inclusion or the organization that they're a part of are doing the same as well. And now, you know, hey, listeners, we gave you a resource where you can actually look into this and have someone come connect with you and, and make your environment a little bit better and create a safer and more inclusive space. So thanks, Corey, for taking out the time to come chat with us about this. Oh, thank you for having me and giving me a platform and a space. Yo, yo, Daph, what you think about Corey Ponder coming to join us talking about impact strategies? Um, I thought it was really good. I really like the, the name of the organization, like the empathy and the impact. Yeah. And I think it's really important to put ourselves in other people's shoes and, you know, kind of try to understand where they're coming from. And, you know, maybe we can better help each other. 
Because it's not just about, I think sometimes we're thinking about what other people can do for us, what other people can do to help our cause, but we should be thinking about helping each other, especially in this current political climate. No, very true. Very true. Yeah, I think the work that Corey does is really good. Um, I think that it's needed. And, you know, I'm kind of glad seeing the black person in the forefront of this kind of work. Uh, we're doing it and building off of it because, um, like I said, it's needed. Companies need it. And even I like to focus on individuals as well, because mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of times when we see or when I see a lot of these kind of organizations <clears throat> do consulting work or come in and do workshops, it's always for, you know, a large group of people. But having that component where, hey, somebody might want to just take it upon themselves to get some individual work or experience or conversation or whatever to, to learn how to be an ally or understand more with empathy of diversity and inclusion. I think that's a really, really, really good component to what he does. And I think more people should start thinking about putting that part of their work too, who, who are in this kind of field that, that Corey's in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I agree. I also appreciated what he said about both and, and he talked about that within the context of, you know, kind of intersectionality and, you know, issues within a black community, how sometimes we feel like we can't address, you know, sexism or, or maybe sexual assault or abuse that happened, you know, because we all know about the disparities in, you know, prosecution and sentencing when it comes to, you know, black males in these types of cases. We also know that there have been plenty instances in which, you know, black men have been falsely accused. And then, you know, it later comes out um, that, you know, their, their accuser, you know, lied, but we can take that into account and also believe our sisters and stand up for our sisters. So it's just kind of like we can fight the injustices that we see in criminal justice in that we see in criminal justice and also, you know, work to, you know, combat sexism and, you know, heterosexism and, and et cetera. Yeah, yeah, definitely good. I mean, yeah, not that whole either or mentality, but both and mm-hmm. uh, makes a lot of sense. And it, it is, I think it is the better approach uh, to handling these situations or taking them head on is to recognize that, yeah, you know, you can ha- you can understand both and, and still be active in pursuing, you know, the the right things or whatever it is, the goal that's trying to be accomplished. So, yeah, I agree mm-hmm. with that. And what about the whole like talented Tim thing? Is it do you think it's obsolete? We didn't like is it even relevant today? Like, is this something that we should stop thinking about and just like start just moving forward? We're just like helping each other. Yeah, I, I think it um, I think when this, you know, that kind of. I guess premise developed. It, it, I guess it was maybe needed in a sense, um, but I think today's time it's because we have so much access to one another compared to back in the day, especially with information uh, making. So things are just the because of social media, things can be uh, viral or mobile way quicker. Um, I don't know if we need to be reliant on that kind of idea that this is group of folks who we should be looking to for all the answers and and making things happen or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't think it's as important today as it once Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. I agree. And if you are going to like step up to the leadership plate, you know, you 
are going to have to do what Corey said and do a lot of growth and a lot of reflection and, you know, introspection to see, you know, what are your shortcomings and like, where can you be a, a, a better empathetic leader? And you also have to get away from like that respectability stuff. I think that was, you know, kind of brought up or, you know, that came to mind when he was talking about the Greek example and not wearing uh, your paraphernalia while you're protesting and stuff like that. And it's like, if you are going to call yourself a leader, you got to, you know, move away from respectability politics and you have to really, you know, place yourself in the shoes of the people that you are supposedly leading. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I think as I've been growing and and looking and learning more about life. I think one of the attributes that I like to see in a leader is someone that can admit, you know, sometimes when they're wrong, you know, I think, I just feel like some, a lot of leaders or people in these leadership positions, when things happen or they make mistakes or they get called out on stuff, it seems very difficult for them just to be like, you know what? I made a mistake and, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I did, I should have did it differently. I wasn't thinking whatever. A lot of times I see like, they're just like, maybe their egos in the way and they're trying to like discredit what other people are saying or not admit that they made a mistake, but we're all human. And mm-hmm. I feel like to me, it really shows true leadership to be like, you know what? I messed up and I'm going to grow from this and I don't want to put you guys in this situation again and we can all move forward in that way. Um, so as, as I've been older, I've been having a really difficult time for people who are in leadership roles and when they do something wrong or there is a mistake um, that they just don't own up to it and and accept it, right? And, mm-hmm. and move on. Um so yeah, that's definitely one of the things. Not that, not that it fully relates to this topic, but as we're talking about leadership and what we kind of see, that's one of the things I look for at least. Yeah, it made me think about some of these uh, potential presidential candidates. We're <laughs> yeah. not gonna get into that. Oh, another conversation. Just say I messed up and I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, whole another uh, the whole another conversation whole, that we will get back thing. to, I'm sure. Yeah, we will, we will. Um, but nonetheless, thank you, Corey Ponder, for taking out the co- time to come chat with us today about your work with Impact Strategies and all of our listeners. You know, go check it out, um, especially if you're working in some of these spaces. You know, all spaces, but I know particularly people have probably more issues in corporate spaces and things like that. You have now a resource or somebody you can point your to your administrators if they're looking to bring in some kind of workshops or whatever. Um, you know now Corey Ponder, or if you're just an individual, again, trying to better yourself in this in this area, you also can reach out to Corey Ponder and I'm sure he'll be ready and, and excited to help you out. Um, but other than that, if you uh, if you haven't yet followed us on social media at BHD Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you can visit our website www.blackandhighlydangerous.com to keep up with all our latest content. Um, you can review and rate us on iTunes, and after you review and rate us, uh, share us with your friends, share us with your family, and share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. <laughs>